Two weeks ago, we did a show about the relationship between Key West and Cuba. That sparked some interest amongst listeners, and the subject of Guantanamo Bay after 9-11 came up. Stay with us. Are you rethinking your life? This is the best time in history to work remotely or retire in paradise. The world's tropical real estate listings are right here. We know the protocol. We will point you in the right direction. If you're interested, our email is printed in the episode notes. Just contact us. Live on tape from Studio B and from the seat of my pants in beautiful downtown Cabaretti, Republica Dominicana. Out of 5 million podcasts, you found Tropical Paradise Waits. I'm Franco. Today's show is a repeat from August 2021. It's part one of a three-part series. I haven't decided if I'm going to play the second part next week, followed by the third part, depending on how many listeners I get. But if you're interested, you can just scroll back down to August 2021 and listen to all three. Hola amigos, this is Don Alejandro de la Vega. Welcome to Tropical Paradise Waits. Do you ever dream of living in paradise? Dream no more, my friend. If you are planning on living in the tropics, or if you are a full-on expat, this show is the show for you. Listen and learn how to make the best of your leisure time. It takes more than a plane ticket to fully enjoy the tranquil lifestyle. It is a state of mind. Let's live a better life. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review of Apple Podcasts. Positive reviews help us rise up the ranks. Please scroll down and click support this podcast. Gracias and enjoy the show. I think, honestly, I'd prefer to go to the parts of Cuba that you've been to, but I'm happy to talk about the one where I've been. And uh, yeah, I was uh, I was a partner at Wilmer Hale for many years. I retired a couple of years ago, and for about 10 years, between 2004 and 2015, I represented uh, six men who had been detained there, along with my uh, along with my colleagues, and what at the time was a major pro bono effort to get people out who'd been interned by the United States at Guantanamo. But it's a it's an interesting place, as you know, not the Cuba that you've been it's to. It's Cuban soil. But we've had a, a, a military location there, a military presence since 1898 during the Spanish-American War. At the time, the Navy set up a base there because it needed it uh, to position its troops, especially uh, to protect ships in the winter. And in 1903, after uh, the Cubans won independence, 
we were given a lease to Guantanamo, and that was revised again a few years later. But initially, the lease was for about $2,000 a year, and it was revised, I think, to update it in the 30s to something around 4000 or 4000 and change. And it's been in place ever since then. And the, the reason that I went to Guantanamo, uh, surpri not surprisingly, and the reason that, that uh, American lawyers, pro bono lawyers, actually were able to vindicate uh, rights of some of the prisoners that were held there really has to do, interestingly enough, with real estate law. Because the lease that we hold as a government with the Cubans uh, gives our government the right to stay in Cuba as long as we want. So it's not a 20-year lease. It's not a 100-year lease. It's essentially a perpetual document that allows us to stay until we decide that we don't want to be there anymore. So that, that in, and in, its, in and of itself is quite unusual. And uh, following the revolution, of course, uh, relationships between the United States and Cuba changed. As a result, not, o not, not only were the, the gates ultimately closed between the base at Guantanamo and the town of Guantanamo, but relationships became adversarial. And if you go there today, and even if you visit Guantanamo as a naval station on Google Maps, you'll see very clearly the delineation of a fence line, and that, that fence line is armed. Uh, there's a Marine patrol that's out every night on it. Uh, I'm, I suspect that the Cubans also patrol on their side, and there are landmines on the Cuban side to prevent people from trying to escape and get into the, the military base. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty scary place from the perspective of, of the Cubans. Uh, but we've been there as long. We've been there since 1898, and I suspect we'll get to stay there as long as we want. To to get a good idea about Guantanamo and how it got to be what it is today, and you know the 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 sad and interesting thing is, you can talk about Guantanamo Bay almost anywhere in the world now, and people picture men in orange jumpsuits. That's what we see. Guantanamo, for better or for worse has become a, a somewhat of a stain on the record, the human rights record of the United States. And it's, it's part of what we, what we have to deal with at this point. Uh, and it's been used as a recruiting tool by different elements, whether it's Al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS, to recruit people, to recruit you know, fundamentalists who might want to fight against the United States because they show what's happened to people there. But the history of it is that we, ha we have to put ourselves back in the position that our country was in in September of 2001. You know, we were the country was suddenly attacked, and overnight uh, things changed. You know, airline service stopped. We we closed the country down. Uh, we watched our borders much more carefully, and most importantly, we started looking at intelligence that we hadn't looked at before. So we're on we're on September 11th. We might have had. Uh, a thousand intercepts or 10,000 intercepts or whatever, what have you, immediately after September 11th, we started using all of the intelligence resources available to the United States, whether it was electronic intercepts, whether it was satellite intercepts, whether it was human intelligence. What that means is by September 12th or September 15th, we might have had 10 times more or 100 times more information coming in. And you know and I know that what we didn't have in that same time was 10 times or 100 times more resources to interpret the intelligence. So what happened is you had 
essentially boatloads of information coming into the same funnel that existed on September 11th. Now, bits of that information suggested that that there were guys either in uh, Pakistan or in Afghanistan, where we know that bin Laden at the time was hiding, who were associated with him and might have been part of the attack. And we also did something that you know, was not unusual for a government trying to collect information is that we offered rewards. Part of what part of what happened at the time was there were lots of men uh, who were in Guantan who were in Afghanistan as part of uh, what they considered jihad. We talk about jihad as if it's a if it's an, an evil thing, but all jihad is not evil. Some jihad is just service. You can doing good deeds could be jihad, but for these men, fighting. For, to protect Muslims was jihad. At the time, uh, a lot of the weapons that they had uh, in, in, in for the people who were supporting bin Laden probably came from us because we had supplied the weapons to the fundamentalists in order to fight the Russians. Right. Everybody has to remember that we had kicked the Russians out a little while before, and then we came uh, we came to Afghanistan only after uh, after President Bush obtained support from Congress to attack. I would imagine President Bush was under quite a bit of pressure uh, from the American people to show some action, to take some initiative. And so therefore, he went out and, and arrested quite a few people. Yeah, of, of course. You, we have to remember, you know, in September and October, the World Trade Center was a crater. It was smoldering. It was smoking. They were, you know, we were pulling out bodies, looking for life. It was a, it was a horrible, horrible scene. You know, the the, uh, the lower part of Manhattan was was destroyed and covered with dust. Lots of, you know, lots of environmental problems ensued. And as the commander in chief, the president had to do something. I think he, you know, sort of as a gut reaction, you have to strike back. And attacking attacking Bin Laden was the right thing to do. The question is, the question became, how were you going to go about attacking the people or capturing the people or interrogating the people who might have known who bin Laden was or who might have been associated with them? And I think it's, it's fair to say, when you think about those now probably hundreds of thousands of intelligence intercepts still coming into the same small number of people who, are, who have the expertise to actually interpret them, you can, you can understand how they might have uh, seized men who were not who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I do remember on CNN News they would bring the military by ground zero or by ground zero before they sent them to Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, that's you know one of the things that particularly under under Secretary Rumsfeld, he was I think may have been the one who's credited with coining the phrase the worst of the worst. You know, and there was there was a lot of publicity, in part because we were doing something that the United States really hadn't done in the same way before, right? We set we set up a, a prison uh, on a military base. Uh, we we staffed the prison with American American military personnel, and then we uh, populated the prison with men who were not United States citizens, who had no connection to the United States, and who actually were in foreign countries. So some of the, a majority of the people who were there were captured from Pakistan or Afghanistan, but others were not. There were people who, my clients, for example, were seized from Europe. 
They were, and they were seized from, a, from an allied government. There were ma many, many more questions, but as Guantanamo was set up, it was something that we hadn't done, and uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to this later, but we were, able, we were able to do it in part because of this strange real estate deal that we talked about earlier, but, and we as lawyers were able to succeed only because of that real estate deal. Well, prior to 9-11, Guantanamo Bay was solely a naval base, is that correct? It was never a prison prior to that? Right, it hadn't, it hadn't been used uh, to, to imprison people the way it was after September 11th. During the 1990s, uh, when there were many, many uh, Haitians who tried to get to the United States, it was used as a staging slash internment area to hold people who might have been, might have been trying to seek asylum in the United States. You know, much like the southern borders used at, at this point to, to, to hold people and talk to them. But it was never used specifically as a prison to hold people that we thought were, were dangerous and to, and to treat them in ways that they might have been treated at Guantanamo. No, the, uh, the, the base is essentially a small, not so small American enclave. It is, it's 45 square miles. Uh, the center of it is, is composed of the bay of Guantanamo Bay. And as you head through it, you can head up to the Guantanamo River and other other Cuban other Cuban towns. Those those towns, of course, at this point, are cut off from uh, the ocean by the military base. Um, historically, Cuban people had staffed the base. They had done lots of the service work, run the cafeterias, done the cleaning, done the repair work. But after the Cuban Revolution, that all stopped. At this point, there is still a base. There is still a um, excuse me. There is still a gate that leads to the actual Cuban part of the island, but that gate is, is typically closed. I'm sure that there's some form of relationship between the military command structure and the town, but there's no, there's no more social intercourse. People don't pass through the gate anymore. It's, it's there as a, as a place for communication. Yeah, my own father was stationed there in World War II, and uh, he told me that they really, there was really no duties for them because at the time they had to hire so many Cubans to work on the base. I can, I can, I can well imagine because I, while I haven't seen uh, those communities outside of the gate, I'm, I'm sure that they're just as inviting as lots of other Caribbean cities would be, right? Love lots of people there. The, uh, I mean, a, a lot of what's, a lot of what has happened down there uh, is. You know, is is the result of changes. I mean, some of the things that you mentioned earlier, all the tasks that formerly were performed by Cuban residents are still performed by non-military personnel. But what that means today is those tasks are performed uh, through government contractors. So rather than just bringing in people from Cuba who might be employed by us, which may also have been done by contractors, I don't know. But these days, there are lots of uh, non-U.S. citizens who work on the base that are brought in frequently from the Philippines who come on you know, one or two or three year contracts or from other countries. They provide lots of the cooking and the cleaning and the maintenance work around the base. The Cubans don't work in the base anymore? As far as I'm aware, there are no more Cubans yeah. who are able to come onto the base unless they were already there and they now live there under some special right. arrangement. But no, no ability to pass back and forth. Uh, the, the people who deal with the prisoners uh, are, have always been, as far as I know, exclusively military personnel. And it's, you know, one of the, you know, getting back to, to where you sort of started us on this, on this route back in, uh, a lot of the military personnel who go there 
do get, at a minimum, are aware of the September 11th attack and might have even been taken to the September 11th location uh, on their way down there. Uh, typically, at, at this point, uh, it's mostly National Guard troops who come through. Uh, they're on, and, and this has been the case probably since 2003, 2004. They're on nine-month nine-month rotations, so they're not there for very long. So, what you've got to imagine is. I'm going to tie, tie this together a little bit now. You have hundreds of thousands or millions of pieces of intelligence information that's come in, uh, and there's at least something, either a rumor or a piece of paper or a record of a phone call or a statement that some villager in Afghanistan made that Mr. X or Mr. Y is dangerous or is associated with Al-Qaeda or is a friend of bin Laden all those pieces of information are now in the file, and they're there at Guantanamo. This, the guards who are taking care of the prisoners and who are watching them and, and protecting them, each other are only there for nine months at a time. So by 2004 or 2005, you have, uh, let's say, seven to 800 prisoners, because that was the, the maximum population was just under 800 men um, who are at Guantanamo they're being interrogated on a very regular basis. So they're taken out once a week, twice a week. What, what, it probably varied from man to man. And they're asked the same set of questions over and over again. At some level, most likely associated with whatever information had tied them there. They're asked about their life histories. They're asked to either verify or dispute information that supposedly associates them with some security risk for the United States. But the guys that are guarding them uh, the people who are asking the questions, uh, the, the interrogators at, at different times might have started off as FBI agents. For some of the men, they could have been uh, associated with the CIA or contractors to the CIA. For some of the men, they might have just been government contractors or they, or they could have been military personnel. That likely changed from time to time, from person to person. And that's, that's something that only the government really knows. Uh, but those people all circulated in and out. Do I dare to mention the T word? That you you can, and that's and that and that that did happen. It was an issue that occurred at Guantanamo. There, you know, part of the part of the uh, problem of Guantanamo is that um, there were there was a memorandum written within the Justice Department by uh, a Justice Department lawyer at the time named Wu who supported an argument that the administration at the time was advancing that what was euphemistically referred to as enhanced interrogation techniques were acceptable. Uh, and the, the problem is that the enhanced interrogation techniques, uh, as we now know, and, and, and at the time, essentially, as the FBI already knew, didn't work. That's not the way you get information right. from people. Actually. It is the way you get information from people, but it's not the way you get accurate information. Right, and it, and it was very uncomfortable. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of an ugly analogy, but part of what happened was uh, Guantanamo, Guantanamo was to interrogation what business school was to new training techniques. You know? So you think of someone coming through a company with a new Six Sigma model of what you're going to do to improve corporate corporate uh, performance, at Guantanamo, ideas for interrogation would come through. So it wasn't that these, these ideas were necessarily applied 
just to the to the men who they thought had information, but you would see massive quantities of the prisoners all subjected to sleep deprivation for a while because that was the trend. The next trend might have been, uh, you know, what what was called a stress position. So you shackle a man's ankles and his wrists together, and you leave him there for hours in a room, and maybe you keep lights flashing, maybe you keep all the lights off, maybe you turn the air conditioning up so it's very, very cold and he's, and he's shivering, maybe you have a combination of all these things. But I know that uh, some, of, some of our clients, for example, were, not, were moved from cell to cell for weeks at a time. And they would be marched around, for example, for some period of time, whether it was 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour outside. After walking, they'd be taken back to a new cell. They'd have, all their stuff was moved. They would have to unpack their things, start to organize, try to, get, try to get to bed. Within a few minutes of getting in the bunk, someone would come along, pick them up again. Start all over it, again. Wow. It was like, it was like uh, Groundhog Day. And this went on sometimes for weeks. It was it was hard on people, and a lot of the men, uh, a lot of the men suffered. For example, we introduced evidence in our case. We were able to obtain medical records uh, on our clients under the Freedom of Information Act. We we filed both a habeas corpus petition, which is the the ability of these men to challenge the government to justify why they're being held. But at the same time, because my my background was in environmental law, I knew that if I wanted uh, records from the government, I could use the Freedom of Information Act. So I, we filed a claim seeking their medical records, and in, in part because of what I explained before, everyone's filing through Guantanamo. No, there's, there was no internal staff, no internal professional military staff that stayed. No one kept files. There, so you had all these guys that were there. But the records were all being maintained by transient forces that came through and left. So no one responded properly to our Freedom of Information Act request, and we got a judge to order them to give us the records. Wilmer Hale had six clients. We, were, we had men who were known in Europe as the Algerian Six. So these were men who had uh, moved from Algeria, which has a, has a, a challenging economy, has had some civil unrest, so at the end, at the end of the uh, violence in Bosnia, if you remember during President Clinton's term, we actually sent troops to Bosnia to help stop what some people refer to as a civil war, others just re refer to as a war of violence. And Ar Muslim men came there to help do service work. And our clients were among the people who had come to that part of the world because there were lots of kids who had no fathers anymore, lots of families who'd been destroyed. They were there doing service work. A couple of them worked for the Red Cross. One of them trained people in uh, self-defense and did computer repair work. One of them was a teacher. They, were, mm -hmm. they, were, they did a variety of things, but they had been in Bosnia at the time. Uh, they were in Bosnia on September 11th. They were in Bosnia in October when the United States said it wanted to seize them. So part of what happened is take you back again, remember all that intelligence that's flowing in and, and the few resources that are available to, to interpret it properly. Well, in October, some intelligence came in suggesting that there was a risk posed by uh, some of the uh, fundamentalist Muslim men in Bosnia to our embassy and potentially to the embassy of the United Kingdom. Uh, that, was the in, that was information 
that was supposedly acted on, our government uh, asked the Bosnians to ar arrest these guys. They And by the way, when I say these guys, all these men have formal names, but th this was like nicknames. This was like we want you to we want you to seize Buzz and we want well, you to seize Buddy. Was part of it because their names were difficult to pronounce? Um, it could have been that simple. It was it was basically because we really didn't have the intelligence wasn't that good and they were informal nicknames that were used in the community and in part because in in the in the Islamic culture uh, people are sometimes known by nicknames other than their formal names. So you could some of these guys could be known as the father of Joe, uh, the, the mother of Susan. Right. You, you, you take something on, and some of the nicknames were that informal. But what, what happened was the Bosnian government, which we had just set up under President Clinton, we had stopped the war, we'd set up a government. It will shock you to find that they said, gee, we can't seize these guys. There's no evidence. So uh, there was a bit of a standoff. This, was, this started in the beginning of October, but by, by mid-October, uh, we went back to them. So the United States government was putting pressure on the Bosnian government to arrest these people on their behalf? Absolutely, absolutely okay. right. That's, that's, that is, in fact, what happened. There's, there's really no question about that. At the, um, uh, when, when, the, when more intelligence information came in or when it was evaluated differently by the United States, uh, I'm not sure what the actual trigger was. Uh, there was a meeting on a Sunday and uh, a, a man who was at the time the charge aide affairs at the American embassy uh, named Christopher Ho, a State Department official at the time, uh, spoke to the head of the Bosnian government and in, said, in effect, um, you have to seize these men. If you don't seize these men, we're going to pull our people out. And if we pull our people out, remember, this is as they're just getting to a level like of peace. Sanctions, after. basically. Right. Uh, we're going to pull our people out. And if we pull our people out, God help the Bosnian people. Right, right. So the next, it will not surprise you that later that day, from the Bosnian government headquarters, faxes of arrest warrants started to issue. No kidding. So let me, let me, let me uh, backtrack a little bit and bring okay. forward on that. So... The guys had been held there starting in, our, our clients were seized in October of 2001. So September 11th has just happened. These guys are in jail in Bosnia. And after a full investigation, including intelligence information provided by our government, the Bosnians are allowed to hold them for 90 days under, um, allowed to hold them for 90 days under Bosnian law. And at the end of the 90 days, once again, they say, we've conducted our investigation there's no information to hold these guys. There's no, we can't connect them to any kind of terrorist activity. So once again, the United States at the time, on, uh, through uh, David Petraeus, who at the time was in charge in, uh, in Bosnia, essentially had to inform the Bosnian government that, that, we, had been, that we, had, we were taking the position as a government that the release of these men posed a danger to American troops who were on the ground, and that under the agreement in place for NATO troops to be there, that that meant the United States could act to protect itself and protect its troops. So either these men had to be turned over or we, could, we would be justified in using military force to seize them. So we would, we would use our own troops to get them. And as a, as a consequence, uh, all six men 
uh, one night, I believe it was, I may get the dates wrong now because it's been a while since I looked at it, but either January 17th or 18th, around the middle of the night in Sarajevo, from the central Sarajevo jail, are all brought into the courtyard of the jail and they're given their freedom papers. They're given court papers. You have to imagine this. You're handed your court papers to walk away and immediately after that, uh, American military personnel dressed mostly in sort of uh, uniforms that don't identify who there are okay. put shackles on your hands put shackles on your feet after they're released after that when you you have your release today's credits are as follows thank you to our program director Don Alejandro de la Vega our editor and fact checker they'll never know our chairperson, Wilma Buffett. Fleet managers, Lisa Carr. Our charm consultant today is... The always charming Miss Inga Tooth. Tiki Bar Reviews by... Hassan Ben Sober. Our favorite divorce attorney... Carmine, not yours. Our credit counselor is... Max Stout. And our fashion designer today... Hugh Jass. And of course, our download counter, Adam Ilion. If you enjoyed the show, help us continue by scrolling down and clicking support for this podcast. I have hundreds more listeners than I had last August when this program was originally aired. So I hope the new listeners enjoyed it. And the previous listeners... I hope you enjoyed hearing it again. Happy Mardi Gras, everyone. Smart people listen to podcasts. Tell your friends. We're at the top of Google. Tropical Paradise Waits is presented by Elusive Media. New shows drop every Sunday. I look forward to hearing you listen. Hasta la semana que viene. Adios. Ten cuidado. Se feliz. Ciao, baby. Thank you.